In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The secret of life is that it is a passion play. Holmes Ralston wrote that in Genes, Genesis, and God, a book I read while working on my dissertation. The dissertation confirmed the fit between Christian faith and evolutionary science. So did Ralston. He and I see our faith and Darwin's science as resonant. In one, we can hear an echo of the other. Not all who write on faith and science agree. Fundamentalists do not, but I am thinking now of atheistic scientists and two other one-liner quips that I remember from my research. One was Jerry Coyne's, that in the origin of species, man was reduced to an aberrant ape and God to a powerless bystander. The other was a claim by E.O. Wilson and Michael Roos that moral conscience is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes in order to get us to cooperate. Those are three of many intellectuals who do not see Christian faith and evolution as compatible. To see the fit, we must know the faith and that the secret of it is a passion play. God is both playwright and, in Christ, protagonist. For us, that's the faith that science would need to fit to. As a priest, I knew the faith from Christmas, Holy Week, and Easter. Incarnation, passion, resurrection are the interwoven themes that give shape and color to our understanding of the world and God. With the science, I had some catching up to do. How did Darwin shape our understanding of the world and life? I brought home some books and studied up on that. In nature, genetic variation, environmental tribulation, and reproduction add up to evolutionary change. It has been a slow and jagged process with a spectacular yield. Our world and all its pain and beauty, a civilization that has given rise to science, literature, and music from Leonard Skinner to Bach. I summarize the process as an interplay of themes, incarnation, passion, and emergent value. From stardust up, we've made quite a climb. Life's creative pathos and resilience are prelude to the gospel story, and it answers to their need. What happened in Jerusalem? As Mark tells it, the instigators of the crucifixion were religious leaders, priests and scribes, were incensed by Jesus' actions at the temple, overturning tables 
and expelling money changers. That conflict had started early in his ministry. It seemed blasphemous to them that he kept doing things that only God can do, forgiving sinners, for example. Even the wind and the sea obey him, some were saying. Who does he think he is? Between Christ and their religious faith, these leaders didn't see a fit. Christians have long been prone to blame the Jews as Jews for the crucifixion. In the Middle Ages, passion plays were dangerous for Jews because the crowds would get their blood up and go looking for revenge. Christ killers, Christians would call them. That unchristlike shadow on Christian faith persisted and then erupted in the 1930s when the Nazis showed what it could lead to. Blaming Jews as Jews for Jesus' death is a sinister misinterpretation. Historians and preachers sometimes lay the blame on Rome as an imperial impressor. They see the conflict as political. Economists, psychologists, and sociologists chime in with other explanations from their fields. Factors like that are in the realm of what Thomas Aquinas called secondary causes, just like the natural processes of evolution. That's not to say that they're unimportant. We are secondary causes, too. Even Jesus was as the protagonist. But this story has a deeper cause. The causa primaria, the primary cause, as Aquinas called it, which is the artistic intention of the playwright who has all of time in view. The actors in Jerusalem, an average sample of humanity, are representatives of us. Through the course of our lives, most of us have had a night like Peter's when our courage failed us. Like Judas, we betrayed someone or something that we hold dear. Like the priest, we've hatched a plot. Like Pilate, we've washed our hands, but the dirt just won't seem to come off. It may be that we've joined a crowd that lost its head and turned into a mob, and so forth. In a timeless sense, we crucify him too, and that's what's happened in Jerusalem. The secret of life is that it is a passion play. Now it is an open secret, reenacted every Sunday morning, wherever two or three are gathered. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, This is my body. After supper, he took the cup and said, This is my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. We bring our passions with us into church and then up these steps to the altar rail. We are Episcopalians, so we carry our passions quietly under cover. From appearance, no one would know on any given Sunday who is ecstatic, who afraid, who anguished, and who remorseful. But all of that, hands out, is at the altar rail. Our passions are not orphans. 
Professors Coyne and Wilson could tell us how they emerged as traits conducive to survival like turtle shells and bird wings and moral conscience. I don't doubt that. But my pastoral concern is not with secondary natural causes, but with the artistic intention of the playwright. Here, we look at what passion is in that wider frame. For analogy, Harry Potter was an orphan, but in J.K. Rowling, he had a mother from beyond his world. Our passions, likewise. With all else, passion is painful. Charles Darwin suffered the death of his 10-year-old daughter, Annie. More than his science, that pain was why he lost his faith. But his observations of the suffering in nature also fueled his doubt. A poem by Tennyson gave voice to doubt in Darwin's generation. In memoriam A.H.H. was Tennyson's elegy to his close friend Arthur Henry Hallam, who had died young of a cerebral hemorrhage. Hallam was faithful, a man, according to the poem, who trusted God was love indeed and love creation's final law, though nature, red and tooth and claw with raven, shrieked against his creed. Against the faith of Jesus Christ, the cross would shriek the same. Paul called the cross a stumbling block to Jews, by which he meant that it was an obstacle to faith. For the same reason, suffering in life and nature has been a stumbling block to scientists and poets. The stumbling blocks are resonant, the one an echo of the other. Trust that God is love and love creation, fi creation's final law is on the line this morning. Writing about faith and evolution, I had to be clear about both to validate my claim. As to the science, I made plain my belief that humans evolved with all other life on earth from simple ancestral life forms. We are cousins to pecan trees. As to our faith, this is my creed. I believe in Christmas. That night we celebrate the birth of God on planet Earth. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That means that it was God, no less, who was betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, and crucified by Pontius Pilate. Christ is God's message to the world from before all worlds. This is who I am. I believe in what we're doing here this morning. The events that we commemorate today from Hosanna to Eliele Labasamectani were foreseen by God who turned and blessed them to the benefit of humankind. God was neither powerless nor standing by. This tragedy is triumph. I believe in Easter. Christ has died, Christ is risen. I believe that factually and literally. In my dissertation, I made that plain. I'll quote myself. 
The literal sense of a word is its primary and obvious meaning. There is an obvious meaning of being alive and an obvious meaning of being dead. With those meanings in mind, Jesus was alive, then dead, and then he was alive again. That's how I put it. I quoted Keith Ward to emphasize the stakes, who said, It is only if the resurrection is actual that the life of a crucified man can show not just that sacrifice has a certain tragic, useless nobility, but that being itself can be trusted, because death, however cruel, is not the end. The truth of that is obvious to me. That's my creed. For the sake of science, I hope I've made it clear. In Marilyn Robinson's novel, Home, a good man tells his young daughter why they go to church on Sundays. It's not to assuage God. He said, God does not need our worship. We worship to enlarge our sense of the holy so that we can feel and know the presence of the Lord who is with us always. He said, love is what it amounts to, a loftier love, and pleasure in a loving presence. Through this week, our sense of God is magnified, and with that, so is our feeling for the value of our world. Love is creation's final law. From before all time, that was the secret all along.